Welcome to the Heroes at Home podcast, where we believe heroes can thrive both at work and at home. This podcast is for those who stand watch while we sleep, who run into buildings while others run out, for those who deploy to hard places to have hard fights, and for the families that support them. Through candid conversation, we will discuss the side of things that don't get glorified in the media, what happens when they come home. We'll be talking with heroes from all walks of life and their partners, children, friends, and beyond, so together we can build a stronger family. I'm Noel Metter, CEO, joined by my co-host, Kenny Thomas. It's so good to be back in the office, doing the podcast here coming out of 2023. I can't even believe it's already February. Got Matt Quackenbush with me. The man, the myth, the legend, the guy, and I don't say this about every guest. I just want you to know that, Matt. I don't just jump in there and say the man, the myth, and the legend, but I've gotten to know this guy over the last couple of months at different first responder conferences, and I will tell you, truly, that is a fitting title because of the sheer number of things that he's into and doing, but also the lives that he's changing. So, Matt, it's great to have you on the show, and uh, we're going to jump into what's your background, and ultimately, the topic that we're going to be talking about is point, post-traumatic stress Disorder, PTSD, PTSI, and uh, yeah. So anyway, hey, welcome to the show, man. Thanks. I'm super, super glad to be here. It's my privilege. That is quite the uh, title. I don't think I can ever live up to legendary status. Well, I was in a group the other day and I asked one of the clients, I said, hey, man, so why did you decide to do this exercise? He goes, because you're famous. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but my name, this is what I tell people. With a name like Quackenbush, it's really hard to forget. So there's like this, like the Quackenbush guy, like it just sticks. So it works in my favor is how, how I would say it. So yeah. Oh man, we could probably do a whole podcast Dude. just on our names. Cause I, I, know. I go by Noel, Noel. Noel. Yeah. There's just, yeah. I'm sure we could trade stories left and right on yeah, the, that, for the, sure. the name thing. For sure. I love it. I just want to let our listeners know that what we're going to be sharing today is going to be both. I think there's going to be some stories. There's going to be some science. Just so you know, if you're listening to this on a podcast, we have a slide deck that we're running through and that's going to be available on YouTube. And so you'll be able to see what we're talking about. But for what it's worth, I think you'll get the gist of it, even if you can't see the slides. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. Let's jump in here, Matt. I think as Stronger Families has been working with military first responders for the last 15 years and our kind of our main places within the relationships, this topic of post-traumatic stress disorder, there's different ways and we're going to jump into all the science behind that. But in your estimation, how prevalent is this? And I should say, what is trauma? Like, let's just start there. Like the base level, what is trauma? So we have this slide up here that you can see. One of the things that I get to do, very fortunate, I travel around the country and I teach about PTSD, right? I'm at a bunch of different conferences. I was in Idaho yesterday training 80 sheriffs about what trauma is. And it's really cool to get to break down the idea of trauma and help people to understand exactly what it is. Because there's this idea out there of this word trauma. I think it's largely misunderstood. So I really want to break it down and simplify it for people into bite-sized chunks so they can understand. But the most fitting and important definition I think that there is comes from Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote this book called Body Keeps the Score. And the Body Keeps the Score is pretty much like the treatise on trauma. It's foundational, fundamental, it's important. And if you guys listening haven't read that book yet, pick it up, check it out. Audible is great, audiobooks, whatever. It's very well done. His definition that I use all the time is an event that overwhelms the central nervous system, altering the way we process and recall memories. Okay. So stuff is constantly happening in our lives. We're constantly going through difficult events. We're constantly going through challenging situations. And some of these events are novel. They're new, right? Some of these events are overwhelming. Some of these events are stressful. Some of these events are pleasurable. Some of these events are joyous, right? And the ones that are difficult and painful and stress-inducing, they alter our central nervous system to such a degree that we are forever changed by these events. And these events don't necessarily need to be like these massive, large-scale, overwhelming traumas. They can be small, but they have to have some sort of personal touch to them. 
where they affect us and the way that we view the world so significantly that we're never the same again. So trauma has like a bad rap, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm traumatized. I just don't see it that way. I think what trauma really is, it's these moments where we have an opportunity to learn about reality, about what is really going on in our worlds. And the reality of life is it's painful. And these painful moments are not designed to be something that we avoid and never talk about and think about again. These painful moments are designed to be something that teach us, that change us, that hopefully motivate us to continue to change and grow. And that's trauma therapy in a nutshell is, in my opinion. Yeah. I think it'd be good for the listeners just as we jump into the research and the science and all that kind of stuff. Kind of your position of authority on this, I think is significant. Some people that we have on the show, they talk from this perspective of their story. And I don't know your story personally, but I know that you work with a lot of trauma patients. And so maybe just real quick, where do you work? What's your background yeah. in this? Yeah. And in my estimation, a leading authority on this topic. I've worked for the last about seven years with a company called Deer Hollow. I have loved working with Deer Hollow. I'm now like a major part of the team, have been for a while. I'm their director of trainings and education. And I travel the country training and educating. So I've done that for a while. I helped start a company called First Watch, which we'll probably talk about today, which is like a proactive treatment approach for first responders and entire departments, which I'm super excited about. Really proud of that company, that new venture that we're into. I also have my own private company that I run called Finding Strength, which is a private therapy practice, consulting, group therapy, as well as I have a podcast out there as well. I'm also super a glutton for punishment. I'm in school obtaining a PhD in psychology, studying trauma and how it affects first responders. So I'm also combing through the most recent literature on this topic. So that kind of is what also gives me the knowledge base that I have. So it's research-based, not just like experience-based, which I think gives me a little bit of a leg up on what's happening fresh right now. I really appreciate that because this last couple of years, we've spent a lot of time on the road at these different first responder conferences. And oh, yeah. while I love the stories that are shared, and I know the impact that can have on an audience of, I'm not alone. These are the things that I'm experiencing. There's a connection, network, all that kind of stuff. I think that there's also the element of like, but what's actually working? What is actually changing lives? And some of that comes down to your own personal journey. But I think in your case, it's tried and true. We've tested it. We've worked with patients. It's been in clinic. That endeavor, I think, is worth noting. So let's just start here, Matt. I think from the perspective of first responders, military, that's the audience that we work with and a lot of listeners that tune in. How prevalent is this idea of them ending up or having PTSD because of their career? So... I think the first thing we got to do is establish, okay, what is post-traumatic stress disorder, okay? In order to qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD, somebody needs to have a large-scale traumatic event happen. It alters their functioning to such a degree that they are significantly altered, right? Their sleep is impacted significantly. They become more irritable, maybe more angry, more anxious, more depressed. Maybe they become suicidal. Something like that starts to happen. And over a period of 30 days, those symptoms do not go back into normal regulatory processes. That would qualify someone for a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. But I want to move away from the PTSD diagnosis, and I want to go and talk about what post-traumatic stress injury really is. Hmm. A post-traumatic stress injury is basically your brain has been altered due to acute events, like one singular large-scale event. But if you're a first responder, you're going to for sure experience what's called chronic trauma, right? And oh, you pulled up the slide. Look at that. Beautiful. Chronic trauma, repeated and prolonged, right? As well, and this is the part that's the most challenging to treat and the challenging to accept is the nature of what's called complex trauma, meaning that it has an interpersonal invasive thing to it. And this is the most difficult part for, I think, the first responder veteran community to chew on and swallow is the nature of the traumatic stuff that everybody's going through in first responder world is complex. Because the thing that I do when I do these talks is I say, okay, let's think about, and the listeners, sorry, I'm going to trigger you, trigger warning. Here we go. Think about the worst call you've ever been on, right? It comes immediately. It flashes right up. It's right there. You can see images from it. There might even be sights. There might even be sounds. There might even be smells. There might even be sensations that are now arising in your body to recall the memory 
And that lets you know that your nervous system was altered by this event. This event is complex in nature because most likely, and I would say nearly certainly, this event involves a child. And not always, but nearly certainly, it's a child. And that is why this is a complex trauma. And that is why a lot of this trauma work that I do with these first responders and with veterans as well, is I don't really talk a whole lot about like on-the-job trauma. What is actually extremely effective is to go all the way back to what happened to you as a child and how you were raised and what your world paradigm became as a young kid and how that has influenced your decision-making and your functioning now as an adult. You can make connections back to zero to 15 age stuff. The trauma symptoms almost disappear. It's not like it's rapid disappearing, but like you come back to normal functioning pretty rapidly. And then you have to maintain with some tried and tested skills and tools and continued social connection. There's a massive inflection change in my voice for a very important reason, because what acute chronic and complex trauma do is they motivate disconnection and isolation. And that is our number one problem in the first responder community isolation and connection is the antidote to all our problems. That's been such a learning, I think, as we've navigated the space of understanding that a lot of this trauma is connected to childhood. And I didn't put those two together. And I think most people miss that, right? They understand the reality of what they're seeing day in and day out, the ugly side of life, the things that are none of us that are civilians. We might witness one, two in our lifetime. They're seeing how many per shift. But the childhood piece, that I think is a surprising one. It's a factor that's not necessarily accounted for. It's huge. The thing that's so hard about it is we have this cultural kind of idea that children are resilient. It's not that children aren't resilient. It's that really human beings are adaptive. We are designed to adapt to our environments. And our central nervous systems are constantly assessing for adaptation. So what's happening in the life of a child, when your nervous system is literally, it's almost if you think about software being written, the earlier the software is written, the more influential it is on the system, right? Your traumas from early childhood are the software being written on your nervous system hardware. And when you're being influenced so early on by the way that you perceive the world, That is the filter, the lens through which you view every single experience of your life. And going back to and examining what you view as a lens, understanding your lens and your view of the world is through your childhood. If you can go back and visit that and understand it and understand that your childhood wasn't bad or good, it just was. And what it was something that adapted you to the way you see the world. What if those adaptations, though necessary and very important at keeping you alive, they adapted you to an environment that is not even close to the way reality or the world really works? And you've lived your life according to this paradigm that you've had since your childhood for now 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. You have to go back there and say, how did I learn to view the world? Is that real? Is that really true? Is the world a bad place? Is the world a good place? Can I trust people? Can I not? Am I safe? Am I not safe? Right? And that becomes this absolute, I can't even begin to explain how unbelievably incredible it is to do this work for myself and with other people. But to do this myself and watch my growth and my stress system adaptation as an adult, where people just chill out, dude. They're just not as angry. They don't want to drink as much. They have better relationships. They sleep better. It's like all these things that everybody's like, I wish I could do that. 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 Childhood trauma therapy and the additional processes that come with it, they really heal you to a very significant degree. I love it. There's like a whole separate podcast just on this topic alone. For sure. The childhood piece. It is complex. Anyway, we'll save that for another time. Great. For a moment here, I think we're going to be jumping into some big words here, some of the research. Let's go. So I'm going to default to you, man. I'm going to probably butcher these, these names or words and whatnot. but. Trauma, where does it occur? What happens there? Okay, so you're talking about brain stuff now, right? Yeah. Okay, so central nervous system has like a, do you have any of the slides for this one? Do you have a brain slide? Yeah, I got a picture up there, brain. Okay, I only see the three types of trauma. It's okay. You're in Utah, man. It's gonna take from Texas It's gonna take a minute. You're good. 10 minutes. Okay, so you can see the brain up there. It's okay, I got it in my (laughs) head. No pun intended. Do you like that? There's a dad joke for the audience out there. Okay, so there's these different parts of the brain. 
And really, there's a bunch of different names for this. The central nervous system is the main thing that's being affected by this part of the brain, or reptilian brain, limbic system, all these different things, right? They're all pieces of the puzzle, but basically it's the midbrain. It's what I call it, simply put. You have a midbrain and a frontbrain, and your midbrain consists of a bunch of different parts, little tiny pieces of this little puzzle in your brain that basically are your survival brain. This midbrain is the part of the brain that does all your autonomic nervous system functioning. And the central piece of the puzzle in this part of the brain is called your amygdala. Okay. And right next to the amygdala is your hypothalamus, which connects to your pituitary gland, which then sends signals down to your kidneys and through the adrenal system. And that is what creates the fight or flight mechanism and response in your body. This little amygdala, hypothalamus, and your hippocampus, which is right next to it. So basically, hypothalamus, hippocampus, pituitary gland, amygdala, right? This is your HPA, okay? Hypothalamic pituitary axis. Boom, big word. <laughs> HPA. There it is. Okay? There it is, well, right there. Hypothalamic pituitary axis. Say that three times fast. And what this system is constantly doing is it is assessing for danger, for threat, all day long, every day, using the thalamus and the sensory gateway and the basal ganglia of the brain the reward and movement centers of the brain to scan using sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing, sound, right? All of those and combining them together into your sensory perceptive experience. And every moment of every day, that HPA is on high alert for any trigger, but better word than trigger, reminder of a past event that was at all painful, right? That it all altered the nervous system to traumatic. So this part of your brain is constantly looking for any reminders of past trauma. And the second it sees something, bam, signal is set. And that signal goes through the HPA, down into the kidneys. Cortisol levels increase. Cortisol is a stress hormone that makes you feel stressed, increasing blood sugar in your body, maintaining that blood sugar up so that you can fight fleet. Adrenaline levels increase in the body. And your, na- your body has now become literally acidic. Okay, that acid level in your body has created an energy. That energy is designed to motivate you to freaking move, to get the hell out of there or to fight. Now, the hardest part of trauma, and this is something that's really difficult to explain, but I think I found a good way to do it. If you can't fight and you can't flee, what then has to happen? We have to have some sort of adaptive response that allows us to still survive. What that adaptive response is called the, it's basically the dorsal vagal response where you drop down into this numbed out, dissociated, disconnected state. And you've seen this, you've experienced it. If the moment after a traumatic thing happens, you're overloaded, you're overwhelmed, you feel all of this energy in your body and you just sit there and then all of a sudden, you're just numb. Everything disappears, flatline. It's just you feel nothing, right? Yeah. Nothing. This just happened to me. I was actually driving here, right? I'll tell you a brief story because I'm a story guy. Driving here, just got done with my hot yoga session because I got to get my hot yoga in. And I'm driving here and I get a text. And this text comes from my colleague at Dear Hollow Jordan. He texts me and says, hey, somebody just died. I'm not going to say the name of the guy. And I've worked with this guy for years. And immediately, I can feel my heart rate increase. I can feel my throat tighten. I can feel my tension on my jaw increase, adrenaline, cortisol. And then all of a sudden, because I can't do anything, I know I'm coming to the podcast, I start rifling through memories I've had with this particular person and I start to tear up. And then all of a sudden, wow, tears mm-hmm. go away, completely, totally numbed out. And I'm just, there's, I'm in this no man's land space. And I know because I've done my own work, I'm like, I'm dissociating. I need to breathe. Make a couple of big deep breaths regulate my system back using breathing to get it out of the alkalinic state that it is now in before acidic. And that's the fight or flight, overly alkalinic. That's the dorsal vagal hypoarousal state, right? Where I'm in freeze state or I'm in fawn, appease, please state. And when I'm in that state and I'm totally checked out and numb, I'm not really registering things that are going on around me. The hippocampus, the memory center of the brain, isn't fired up as much as it used to be and I'm just checked out. I have to check back in. The way we check back in is with movement, breath, 
with social engagement, with things like that. And so they become the skills and tools that we have to learn how to do. But the most primary of all the skills and tools, of all the skills and tools, when it comes to trauma work, the absolute most fundamental is the ability to be mindful, the ability to be observant of your state, to be aware of when you're in that acidic, hyper-aroused, fight-or-flight state, and the capability and ability to be aware of when you're in the hypo-aroused, the down, freeze-fawn state. If I can become aware of what it feels like in my body and alert myself to being in which state, I can then come out of those two states and regulate myself so that my functioning and my thinking is engaged and active and present. And that is, man, that skill set is unbelievably understated. It is so much more necessary than anything because what we do and what we've been taught as a society is if I feel like I'm overloaded, I need to chill out. I need to relax. I need to stop this. I need to make it go away. And we turn to numbing agents, avoiding agents. And the number one most commonly used numbing and avoidant agent is, if you're watching, it's this phone. Because the moment I feel stress, what do I do? I go to my phone and I start summoning through. And I'm just, boom, I engage that dissociative state. I force it on myself and I'm checking out from reality and the world and I'm into another space. Alcohol does this. Cigarettes do this. There can be so many different ways that I check out. I can eat, do this. I can control things. I can not control things. I can scream. I can yell. All of these things are adaptive in their own way to get me to feel like I'm not out of control. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily regulation. That's not necessarily getting my body out of acidic or overly alkalinic states. What it is, it's disconnecting me from the feeling. So what mindfulness is connecting to the feeling and allowing myself to feel that feeling so that maybe I could learn something. Imagine that learning from your feeling. Yeah, right. Anyways, there yeah, you go. I mean, it's, Fire hose, it's Jeff. I don't know if you can see the slide, but I put it up there and I love that you guys have created this like hyper arousal, hypo arousal, and then this window of tolerance. And I think that when I saw this for the first time, I'm like, oh my gosh, this like really helps take all this complexity and put it in a way that it's, okay, now I'm regulating. And I appreciate you sharing just a really practical story because how many of us have had that call or <laughs> we're driving, we get cut off to that isn't, hey, I got to self-regulate. I got to intentionally breathe and connect. No, most of the breathing is how many cuss words can I get out at that guy yeah. <laughs> that cut me off? You know what I mean? So the regulation isn't there, which I know we're going to get into that, but I just wanted to just make mention of that slide. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's worth yeah. checking out. It's really powerful. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the window of tolerance. So this is a theory by, oh, I can't remember that guy's name. I think it's Stephen Porges. I could be wrong. Anyways, he developed this theory called the window of tolerance theory years ago. I think it was in the 90s. And it's just a really simple way to explain what's going on in your body, that you can have an up state and a down state, and then a regulatory window of tolerance state. And the idea is this. The more aware I am of when I'm out of regulation and in the red or in the blue, right? Hyper, red, hypo. The more aware I am of that, the more ability I have to widen my window of tolerance. And there are actually different things that you can do, daily things, weekly things, regularity that widen that window of tolerance. So excess exposure to stress, right? A stressful job, a stressful home life, a stressful situation lots and lots of stress, narrows that window of tolerance. So we're actually more likely to and more quickly launched into hyper or hypo arousal because of our narrow window of tolerance. So what I teach and what I train on and what I do and practice is widening the window of tolerance so that I can become more tolerant of stress, more capable of dealing with uncomfortable situations as they arise, because they're going to arise. Like, this myth that suddenly somewhere I'm going to find this super zen out state and I'm never going to be stressed out again. That's just not reality. Like, I don't know where that idea came from. It definitely didn't come from Buddhist Zen people who everybody thinks they need to be. Like, the idea that we're not going to be stressed is the wrong idea. It's that in stress, I can still maintain regulation. Post traumatic stress symptoms in my body is yeah. the way that I explain it is this is my body communicating to me to pay attention. 
yep. to notice, to become aware. If I'm not sleeping at night, this is my body saying, pay attention. If I'm more angry and irritable than I normally am, this is my body saying, pay attention. If the things that I used to love to do now are of no interest to me, this is my body saying, pay attention. And what we know is that we have a really high risk for developing suicidal ideation. The one that's up here right now. Now, um, see here that the rates of depression, post-traumatic stress disorder among firefighters five times higher than the general population. I think we know that's true, but five times higher? Crazy. Yeah, it's 500%, right? That was a while. Say five times, like, what does that mean? 500% more likely to develop depression and PTSD disorder, be diagnosed with it than the general population. Bonkers. And this is the thing that nobody likes to talk about, right? Is the suicide. The reason why, I say this all the time, the reason why I'm on that stage, the reason why I'm in that precinct or in that department is only because enough people killed themselves that we started to pay attention. And that was a really gnarly thing to say, but it has to be said. It just does because the reality is people won't stop killing themselves. Why? What in the hell is going on in this community that would allow these statistics to continue to be the way that they are? And what we know is that we've done things and intervened in certain ways that have been effective at reducing these rates of suicide. We have found that one of, if not the most effective interventions at reducing depression, levels of anxiety, post-traumatic stress, suicidal ideation is talking to other first responders who are not directly linked to you through your department. And that makes total sense. That makes total sense. So what we really need to be doing is setting up communities of places like AA, right? I'm not saying that everybody needs to go to AA, although the joke that I say is maybe something you should, but the reality is we need community style groups where people can go and talk. We need social organization, systematic organization where people go and connect with each other outside of their departments. That seems to be the most effective that we know right now. And so that makes sense that you go to these conferences and what do you see? These guys talking about their story because you feel what? Number one, you feel not alone. You feel connected. Hooray, there it is again. Because our problem it's is so isolation. crazy you should say that, Matt, because we put on these retreats for couples and their first responder couples are coming in. Yeah. And a lot of the baseline is teaching them tools, skills to deal with the environment that going and seeing the exit side of life, coming home, how do you relate to be there, present, turn on the emotion for my spouse, all those kind of things. But I will tell you that the piece that continues to come out is when we start talking about PTSD and we have a couple who shares. And the one who's walking that journey, the spouse is able to say, for so many years, I thought it was me. I thought I was the one that was creating, whether it was the behavior of shutting down or drinking or whatever it might be, I'm the responsible party. And yet in that, the dialogue begins to change to, this isn't because of, I'm not responsible for this. This is something that has happened to him or her. And how can I walk with them in that journey? Yeah, just to reiterate what you're saying, it's so powerful, I think. I think the part that's hard for me, and this one's really just, I was talking to Tim Sears, who's my first responder director. And it just, it really hit us at a core. Steve Redman, I think you probably know Steve. Here's a guy who started Code 4 Northwest. He was up there teaching on this stuff. He's a part and he really understands it in the community. And to see that his passing, man, that just shook us to the core. It's wow. Even that, right? If you have thoughts on that, because I I have tons. I know Steve. I I know Steve. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's not like a correction or anything. One of the things that we have to do in the community is we have to start saying, his suicide. Died by suicide. Yeah. That needs to be a regular thing because what we need to normalize talking about this in a way that we can have conversations about it. Yep. Because if it's taboo or stigmatized, we're going to go dark and we're going to yep. go underground and we're not going to talk about it. Yeah. So Steve killed himself. And that yeah. is unbelievably and tragic. Yeah. And yes. it's so good that you brought that up because I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. I not say it. And I've had conversations where I see people like, oh, do we say out of sensitivity for his family? So thank you for addressing that and just putting it right out there. And to be super honest, it's out of respect mm. for him, for Steve. Mm-hmm. Steve killed himself. That's, that's sad. That's awful. That's tragic. That's breaks my heart. I loved that man. Mm-hmm. I knew him really yeah. well. And I, I've been to dinner with him and his wife and he's been part of this first responder to me for so long. And he talked openly about his issues and his treatment stints and all the stuff that he's done. And I saw one presentation, he quoted me and what I was 
conversations that he was doing. I love Steve. And when I heard, it broke me. I started crying. It's so needless and so sad. And today, another, this wasn't a first responder guy. I shared about another guy who died. It was breaking my heart, man. And I get a little choked up because this shouldn't, I don't want us ever to become calloused and numb to this. We can't let that happen as a community. This has to hurt. This has to stink. Because somebody who gave a shit about you and this community felt so hopeless that their option was to kill themselves. This is a commentary on the community as a whole. And that is not fun for me to say. I don't like being this guy. The guy that comes in to the outsider and just like, listen up, people. What is happening here in this environment is producing this outcome. Why? What is going on? What needs to be changed? We have to ask very difficult questions. This needs to stop. Why? Are police officers more and more being arrested for extreme acts of aggression and violence? Do you think that potentially, maybe, and I'm not saying this is causal, I'm saying, is there a correlation here between post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms like aggression, an inability to connect action to consequence, an inability to regulate my nervous system is contributing at all to moments of extreme aggression where they're ripping people out of cars for non-compliance and beating them. We just had this happen. Five police officers beat a man to death. Recently, this happened in the last, what, a couple of weeks? Memphis. This just happened. This is national news now. And the videos are be coming out soon. They were all fired, right? Now there's being brought charges on them. And this is not a fun, popular thing to say. And I'm going to get <laughs> shit for this. I know I will. And people aren't yeah. going to like it. But guess yeah. what? I'm the guy that doesn't pull punches. They keep yeah. putting me on a stage because I refuse to pull punches. Reality is, community-wide, we have to step back and look at ourselves. Can you imagine if you were in an organization, right? Let's say it's a family unit, okay? And this family unit is dysfunctional enough that half of the people in this family feel like they can't talk about their problems, that over half of the people in this family don't just feel like they can't talk about their problems, Feel like if they do, they'll be in trouble or most importantly, they'll get kicked out of the family. Whoa, what's going on in that little family? And this isn't every department. This isn't every precinct. This isn't every environment. It's not the environment as a whole, but there are factions within this environment as a whole that perpetuate this ideology, if you will, that talking about my problems, this vulnerability thing is weak. And I think that's got to go. I really do, because what is the antidote? Social connection. And what is that culture? What is that ideology breeding? Disconnection, Mm -hmm. separation. And that directly contributes to rates of suicide, depression, post-traumatic stress, police violence. I'm not just talking out of my ass here. This isn't just the gospel of Gordon Matt, right? This is academic research papers are now studying this, addressing, and beginning to quantify and qualify these symptoms of the culture. And we can see this now systematized and in black and white in peer-reviewed journals. So I think we're at a crossroads here. We need to really begin to look at ourselves very closely and say, okay, what is contributing to this? What's causing this? How do we remedy it? And unfortunately, just in my opinion, what I've seen is there's an old guard that is very reluctant to change, Mm -hmm. that has almost their head in the sand and saying, we're going to do things the way we've always done them because that's just the way we've done them is the definition of ignorance. And I speak boldly and I've talked to these guys and I've said this to their faces. They're not happy about it. But the problem is, one other truth, I'm not wrong. Sorry. Yeah. I'm not. Well, it's hard to watch as an outsider, but it's really painful to watch. Yeah. That's why I get emotional and passionate and frustrated. But anyways. I love that. I love the emotion. We can't lose the emotion, right? And that's what keeps us in the fight. But let's flip here because I think we've done a lot of talking about the problem and what is this. But mm-hmm. I want to talk about how do you get through it? What are some of the ways that you guys help individual have that self-regulating element, the journey that they're on, giving them the tools that they need, the community mm-hmm. around them. So if it's okay, can we jump into that and just kind of share a couple of yeah. things that you would say, man, if they're listening right now and it's, yeah, I'm identifying with what you're sharing, what do they do about it? So a couple of things. You can look at this from a couple of different perspectives, right? There's one of looking at it from a perspective of what can I do individually? What can I do in my home, with my family, what can I do for the community? I think it all comes back down to the individual 
mm-hmm. of what we need to really do in order to self-evaluate and assess where we need to start. Individually, one of the things that has come to light of extreme importance is being able to regulate your nervous system through breathing. And working with the breath and understanding how the breath work is very powerful. And this is the concept of mindfulness that I talked about just a second ago, being able to be present and aware in the moment, open to things that are happening, being able to have a headspace of curiosity and openness rather than a headspace of confusion and judgment. Very important. That actually changes the way your nervous system is functioning and it regulates you, gets you back in that green zone. But this breathing method that's up here, four by six, is a very simple, easy to use, concrete tool that anybody can use at any time for regulatory purposes, right? I did it today in there in my freaking Bikram yoga class, just freaking heart rate. I'm looking down, heart rate 180. I'm doing this crazy pose, like in weird, it's 105 degrees in there. My body's just dripping sweat. And what do I do? Four in, six out. And I kid you not, you look at that heart rate monitor and it goes from 180 and it comes right down to about 155 in a matter of 10 to 15 seconds just by breathing. So working with your breath and getting your nervous system to respond to the control of the breath is absolutely crucial. Hmm. So what I like to do for people is I have on my website, and I don't think we have this up here, I'm going to be sharing this at Coeur d'Alene, is I have developed through a bunch of different information sources, guys, podcasts that I listen to, research that I've read. I've developed my own version of a morning routine that I do pretty much every day. And all of my individual clients, patients, they do it too. They have to commit to doing it for a month. Yeah. And as they do this, nearly 100% of them are sticking with this little morning routine because it's fairly simple. The idea is if I can prime my nervous system every single day to be ready for the day, and I do that every day and create consistency very first, and I prime my system to be ready to deal with difficult situations, to be ready to deal with stress by inducing stress on purpose called eustress. If I can do that early in the day, the rest of my day is just better because I'm more regulated. Use some of that stress chemical. So simply put, cortisol is the main stress hormone. And every morning when you wake up, your body releases cortisol. And it's a form of energy, right? It's stress, it's hormone, it gives you energy. That's what spikes and then you get the energy throughout the day. And then that hormone level kind of dips off throughout the rest of the day. And then you go to sleep at night. Here's what happens when your hormone levels are out of whack, especially when you have post-traumatic stress stuff. It's really a cortisol problem. Your cortisol spike doesn't happen early in the day. It might spike early in the day and come down. It might spike later in the day and go up and stay up. And that's why you have such a hard time sleeping. So I'm a huge fan of Andrew Huberman Lab podcast. If you guys haven't heard of that, it's just freaking brilliant. It's a little heady and academic and he said, uses big words, but he breaks stuff down really well. And one of the things that I learned listening to him and then doing some more research is that it's important to hack your system and create a cortisol spike early in the day. Hmm. So the morning routine looks like this. You wake up, the very first thing you do is you hear that alarm, hop out of bed immediately, right? And this is before 7 a.m. You're getting up before 7 a.m. for sure every single day, okay? And if it's shift work, this will still work for you if you're a shift worker. Get up, roll out of bed right away. The first thing you do is you take a big deep breath and you make your bed, very first thing. This is something the military does. This is not hard to do. This is just discipline, okay? Mm -hmm. Bam, make the bed. Immediately drop down, give me 20. Push-ups, 10 to 20 push-ups right there. Boom, first thing you do, first thing of the day, okay? I stole this. Off a couple different podcasts that I've heard. I heard this one day and I was like, I'm going to try it. Tim Ferriss does this every day. If you haven't heard the Tim Ferriss podcast, also awesome. 15 yeah. push-ups, done. Stand up, take a big deep breath, then go to the bathroom, do whatever it is that you need to do, use facilities, be done. And then after that, a couple different options. You can journal, you can read. You can do what's called a mind map, which is a mind-body bridging tool that I teach people. You can exercise. You can take a cold shower. You can do those in any order. But for the first 60 to 90 minutes of your day, you're not allowed to eat and you're not allowed to caffeinate. You have to do all that other stuff first. Creating a cortisol peak in your body early in the day and then like boosting that cortisol peak with a little bit of caffeine to reduce the adenosine in your body to keep that energy level strong throughout the rest of the day. What people who do this find is that all of a sudden they get to three o'clock and they don't have the crash anymore. All of a sudden they get to three o'clock and they feel energized and they don't want another cup of coffee. 
and they're ready to go and they get done at five o'clock. And the other thing that people realize is you roll around to six, seven, eight o'clock at night and you feel tired and you don't need to be stressed out and your mind's not racing all over stuff and the sleep comes quickly and you fall asleep much faster. So it's basically like you're priming the pump early in the day, setting what's called your circadian rhythm early. And then later in the evening, you're able to sleep better. So it's almost like this 16 hour process of waking to sleeping that you regulate yourself by hacking the system, by creating energy in the morning. The other thing that's important that I neglected to mention that is on the morning routine that Dr. Huberman recommends is viewing sunlight early in the day within the first 30 to 60 minutes, direct sunlight right into your eyes. That sets the circadian rhythm clock and helps with cortisol peaks early in the day as well. So anyways, I talk fast, lots of stuff. You can go on my website, finding-strength.com, the morning routine. It's on there. Click on it. Yours free. Feel free to check it out. I have a list of other podcasts on there that I've used as well. And that is a fantastic thing. I just want to get your thoughts on this. What you just mentioned, this routine I'm just thinking for someone who has complex PTSD, mm-hmm. is that enough for them? Or is this in a combination with doing the deeper inner work that you guys have at Deer Hollow? Because sometimes I think in my experience, we can talk about these things and we can say, this is what you need to do. But we don't recognize that the complexity of what they're dealing with is only going to get them so far. And it's almost like we set them up for failure because they're like, oh, if I do what matches told me, things yeah. are going to get better or they're going to at least dissipate. What's your thoughts on that? What's your opinion on that? No, that's a really good point. And we put a lot of emphasis on performance, right? I want to improve my performance. Mm-hmm. But when you're really looking at nervous system regulatory function, your nervous system regulatory function has been written onto your brain because of your traumas. And if you really want to reset and recalibrate your nervous system regulatory function, you need to do trauma. And the reason why this is so important for all my clients is because what you're doing is you're creating baseline stress management skill sets, which is fundamental when it comes time to do the really difficult work of going back and talking about trauma and post-traumatic stress stuff and really digging deep and actually working with the therapist or in group, or one of the new things that's come out now that's getting some notoriety, right, is this idea of plant medicine, psychedelic interventions, right, with like ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, like these things are now being used in clinical trials. Ketamine is here to stay. Thousands of ketamine treatment facilities across the nation. Mm. Lots and lots of people are having major help with these. The more regulated and primed your nervous system is when you go in to do the trauma work or where you go in to do the plant medicine stuff, the better the results are going to be. And this is, and I think why I harp on this so much when it comes to these performance things is because trouble work is awesome. It's really important. It is, and it needs to be done. But I've just found that my industry, the clinical world, we put so much emphasis on the therapy side of things. And it's boring. <laughs> it's not that it's boring. It's, maybe I'm bored of it. It's not fun. Yeah. I think that life should be fun. I think that you should enjoy what you're doing. And that's hard work and it's important. But man, this stuff that I'm talking about, this morning routine thing, you can get up in the morning and I kid you not, I'm excited. I love waking up. Monday is my favorite day of the week because I'm ready to go. Yeah, And I think that's a really important part of what we're doing here is we're trying to reform the way people view their experience, their life experience. And trauma work can do that in a big way as well. And it is necessary, but trauma work won't work unless you have the regulatory skill set that's foundational. And yep. so that's why I teach that first. Yeah. And, and that is, I think, key because I've seen two different sides of this. There's the, hey, I went and did my, whether it's 14 days or 30 day treatment, residential treatment. I went in, did the hard work on trauma. But then I come home and I don't have these baseline stress management in place and it all falls to shit. You know what I mean? Like wayside and it's like, it doesn't work. That didn't work. Right. And so we point at that and say it didn't work. But I think it's in combination, right? It's like, it's all the things. We've got to do the deep work, but we've also got to be able to regulate and manage this going forward because you're not going to be in treatment for the rest of your life, at least in terms of residential treatment and those kind of things. So I love the perspective you guys have. And I think it's a balanced one. It's what we've been circling a lot of these different places that do what you guys do. And again, Matt's not paying me to say this. I will say that Deer Hollow is one of the best that we've 
seen, not only for those who have gone through it that we've talked to on the back end of it, but I think they just have more of a holistic approach. Yeah. It's body, mind, soul, chemistry, yeah. four prong, yeah. right? We're working on the body. We're working on the mind. We're working on your soul or your spirit or yourself. And we're also very mindful of your emotional chemical makeup and how this is a chemical problem. Yeah. You are dysregulated chemically and you need to create a regulatory baseline chemically in your body. Trauma work does, I think what trauma work is designed to do yep. to create a new baseline. But if you don't maintain, you're going to have a very difficult time really creating the benefit necessary to be happy and enjoy your life again. I know there's so much more to cover. We could stretch this on for two hours, but I'm not Joe Rogan and I don't have that kind of style. So we're going to have to yeah. cut it off early here. You're good, man. Uh, make sure we don't lose our listeners. But I did want to ask this, Matt. One wants to get a hold of you. I just threw this up there because it's public domain. It's on your website. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is contact information, I believe, for Dear Hollow. But I guess my final question to you would be singular factor that you've seen in your experience to help someone who is feeling hopeless right now. What would you say to them? Human connection, yep. love. Yep. And as cliche and as trite as people make love out to be, it is the reason for everything. Mm. It is the only energy that fuels us in a creative, positive, connected direction. If you are hopeless, it is because you have forgotten how important and lovable you are. You have forgotten the reality of your life and your importance. And so one of the cliche little catchphrases that I have, and people, I actually heard the other day that a past client got this tattooed on them, but wow. it's literally, the phrase is, don't forget to remember. And that's really broad on purpose. Wow. Because we have to remember how important we are as individuals and that I have a role to play. And that my role in this human family cannot be overstated. Like you matter. What you're doing right now is important, not just to you, to your community, to your family, to potentially hundreds, thousands of people. You have no idea the ripple effect that you have in the world. One smile on the road, simple as that seems, can save people's lives. Smile, be good to the world. I got you off in traffic. Wave. Don't get angry. Let it go. Move on. Am I good at this? I have a hard time. But I try. And I think that's what matters. I try to be loving and good and fill my heart full of gratitude and share that with the world. And I think that shows through. And I'm a happy guy, man. Like I have a great life. I couldn't be more grateful for this incredible opportunity to work with this amazing community tour with Dear Hollow. God, I'm just so freaking fortunate. And I really honestly believe, man, the thing that drives me and keeps me going and the thing that I teach everybody and try and share with the world is just love. Man. Just love. Yeah. Yeah. First watch. What is it? First watch. Yeah. Yes. I want to get it in. Yes. We'll definitely talk about first watch. So firstwatchwellness.com if you want information on this. Okay. Briefly, first watch is this incredible new organization that has just come, it's been around for a while now, so we do have some data on the efficacy of it, but several dozen departments now have signed on with First Watch, and what happens is department contracts with First Watch. Every single member of that department, every single member of that department, once a year will meet with a clinician that I personally have vetted and trained, and this clinician is an expert at working with first responders. They educate the first responder, they perform a wellness check is what we call, and in that wellness check, we get some data. How's your sleep? How are your relationships? How's your stress levels? And what I do is I take this aggregate data and I use it to craft trainings. And these trainings for a year for every single department are crafted based off of the need of this particular department. And we go in that department and I work with their administration. I work with their peer support team and we train them four times a year on exactly what that department needs. As well, if somebody wants after their wellness visit to continue to have therapy because they like this clinician, they can have as many visits as they would like. Six are covered by the department and the program. And then after that, we work the insurance company to keep them connected as long as they want. 
This is 100% confidential. It's done via telehealth, which is actually an amazing platform. Amazing platform. You don't have to go to an office. You don't have to do anything. You can stay in your home in the comfort, safety of your environment, talk to your computer, through your phone, whatever. This other person, extremely effective. Way more effective than we ever imagined. Telehealth is as effective as in-person therapy. This is now widely accepted. Not only that, it's not just for the first responder and the department. It's for spouses. It's for kids over age 12. They're also included in the plan. So pretty much we're covering everybody. We're trying to do it on the front end. We're trying to catch things before they get bad because Deer Hollow is really great. We have some proactive treatments, right? Like one of the things I run an IOP group every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday in the evenings on their Mondays. And I have another clinician who runs Wednesday and Thursdays. And we do a three-hour group therapy style via telehealth. And it is mm-hmm. fantastic. That's run yep. through Deer Hollow. And a lot of First Watch is plugging into the Deer Hollow thing because they want to do the IOP group thing. So there's what we call multiple levels of care from telehealth IOP all the way up to the 30, 45-day residential style stay. And then we have on the other end, the proactive catch them before it gets too bad approach that has been wildly successful. Quick story, Lehigh Fire Department recently had an incident and I'm in Lehigh, Utah. And because they had this incident and they are signed up with First Watch and we are local and we have local clinicians around the area, wherever, pretty much wherever we're contracting, I was able to go out within a couple of hours of the incident, meet with the team, the shift that had the incident happen, meet with the individuals where the incident happened. And I was able to teach them and train their peer support team on how to run a therapeutic style group. And Chief Kraft and I are very good friends. And he has personally said to me, that was one of the most effective things that has ever happened in his entire career because the response was so quick and so effective. And all of these people that were involved in the incident had the option to go to therapy within 24 hours with a clinician. And they all did. Wow. And there wasn't this massive tank and, there, and people weren't all sad. It actually became a catalyst for other people to go and get help. So now our incidents don't become this like dark thing that we're like, oh no, what do we do? They become this movement, this motivation to go and check in with ourselves and actually reassess what's happening in the department and bond and connect. Yeah. Wow. That's the point, right? It's amazing. And yeah. if people need more information on it, again, firstwatchwellness.com. You can email, you can call, phone number 877-225-5443. You can also reach out to me and I can hook you up. You can also call Deer Hollow if you need them, 801-679-6669 and deerhollowrecovery.com. Yeah. Boom. Matt, thanks, man. I appreciate you jumping on here. I know you're a busy guy, but- um, No, this is great. Love it. valuable. And for those who are listening, please reach out. One, Matt just mentioned those, strongerfamilies.com. We're also available. And I think it's going to take all of us collectively saying, we've got to do something. Like each of us play a part in this. And so whatever that looks like for you, I would jump in on this mental health side of it, whether it's the relationships that are around you. If you know someone, I just have learned that it's not just to the clinicians. It's not just to those who are speaking on stages. It's to every single one of us. We've got to do our part. So mm-hmm. encouraging that. And again, thanks, Matt. You're welcome. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it.